Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I read through about 100 pages of the works of American writers while giving my thoughts, my comments, and my historical perspective on them. In this episode, we'll be continuing our look in In Dubious Battle. In part one of this series, we met our major characters, Jim Nolan and Mac, to communists who go to organize the Torgas Valley apple pickers into a strike uh, over falling wages. We also learn a lot about how the strike began and the conditions among the apple pickers and we learned about some of the, um, the major players who will, who will be active in the strike. Um, when the last episode ended we had just saw Joy who is not one of the apple pickers but was a Another communist who came on, he was mentally disabled due to a blow he took by the police earlier in his life, and he was shot by the police. Uh, our main organizer, Mac, believes this can be a moment to galvanize the strikers. And we see here the first real test that, that shows that Mac is willing to use other people, uh, even to the point of death, in order to achieve his goals of victory in the strike. And one of the big, I think, points of controversy about this novel is to what degree is, is Steinbeck and to what degree should we be sympathetic to Mac and the larger goal, or is he really trying to cast doubt on the goals of the radicals and the union and the organizers? There's not really a union here, so if I, if I say union at any point, it's a mistake. Uh, they never really take the, they, t they talk about organization and the need for discipline, but they never actually take the step of forming. Uh, a union. It's really a reactive strike, a wildcat strike to the cut in wages. So anyways, I went through the first nine chapters, so you can go back and listen to my comments in that episode if you're just joining, joining me. But with that, I'll go right on to the next chapter. There's, there's six more, and then that'll give me time to talk about some of what I think are the major themes of this book and how they might relate to other uh, books we've looked at in this podcast. Okay, chapter 10. So after the death of Joy, Joy died in the scuffle where basically the police shot him dead, the spirit on the camp seems to be breaking. Um, and it's not really because of the death of this man. He wasn't one of the apple pickers. He was kind of an outsider. And how to use him to galvanize the workers is a bit of a problem here. But really the deeper problem is there just isn't that much to do. There's, it's really difficult to, to keep a picket going, especially in this big area. And they're not really bringing in, the, the Growers Association isn't really bringing in a lot of scabs to work. So it's not that big of a deal yet. They were bringing in vigilantes and people to perform violent acts against the strikers. But they're not yet really going full-blown with strike breakers. Uh, just maintaining the picket is pretty tough. And mostly people are just sitting around without that much to do. Um, it's, it's kind of off the page where they pick the apples of Anderson, who owns the land that they're using, because that was kind of the deal. That, that's all kind of done off page, but it's, it's, we know, learn later on that it was done. Um, we learn in this chapter, too, where Mac 
where Mac talks about using people, and he, he you know, he, he doesn't like the current leader of the Growers kind of ad hoc committee. He, he would have preferred Landon. Uh, instead, they elected D- Dakin. And here's what he says about him. And it just shows that Mac sees everyone, all the pickers, as a tool to be used for the goal of the strike. Now, whether that's necessary is, is an issue, because one reason the strike fails is because of a lack of discipline, a lack of people being put in the right position, a, a lack of... Uh, people really being utilized, and that's because they don't have these authoritarian institutions, right? People strike voluntarily here. It's not the Communist Party back in Russia, obviously. So here's what Max says. You know, I think we made a mistake about putting Dakin in. He's too tied up with his truck and his tent and his kids. He's too careful. London have been our best man. London hasn't got anything to lose. I wonder if we could get the guys to kick Dakin out and put London in. I think the guys like London better. Dakin's got too much property. Did you see the folding stove of his? He doesn't even eat with the guys. Maybe we could start working and see if we can get Landon in. Landon in. I think Dakin was cool, but he's too damn cool. We need somebody who can work the guys up a little bit. So again, we show that Mac really doesn't have too much loyalty, and he's just willing to to use people. So, meanwhile, there's there's a handful of scabs and a group of pickets challenge these scabs, and it breaks into a brawl. It's actually pretty bloody. Uh, Sam, one of the strikers, was shot in the shoulder. Jim Nolan has his arm hurt and his arm's injured, basically, for the rest of the novel. Um, and, you know, some strikers get beaten up. Dakin is arrested not long after this. So um, we see, on the one hand, this is the kind of thing Mac thinks will get the people going. You know, we'll see, like, an insult to one is an insult to all. And therefore, when one is hurt, the others will, will rise up. Although there's not much evidence this really happened. And in fact, this seems to be a negative event because it does lead to this greater police um, surveillance and then Dakin is arrested. But Mac is actually enthused about this. He thinks the men will wake up and he, he says this straight up that um, they got a shot of life this afternoon. I know it's quick, but we got to have that funeral tomorrow. That ought to steam him up for a while. Right? And But he's constantly worrying about the morale, the energy... The, the spirit of, of, of the strikers. Now, in response to this, now, Jim Nolan gives an example from Greek history. We don't have too much evidence here that Max is incredibly well-read. Um, he doesn't, like, quote Marx. He doesn't quote communists. He's, he's an organizer. He, he believes in the cause, but he's not necessarily very well-educated in that. Nolan, we know from the early chapters, learned a lot of history and philosophy and literature and things from this this guy he talked to not from his father but from this guy he talked to and one of the books he did mention reading was herodotus herodotus of course the greek historian one of the first historians in world history and he gives an example from herodotus which is jim trying to make a contribution as we've already seen jim is constantly frustrated that mac is not utilizing him and here we see his value perhaps that he has a bit of an idea Quote, well, there's the Greeks with some ships all boxed in a harbor, and they want to run away to beat hell. And here's a whole slow of Persian ships out in front. Well, the Greek admiral knows his guys are going to run away, so he sends word to the enemy to box them in tight. The next morning, the Greeks see they can't run away. They've got to fight to get away, and they'll win. They beat the hell out of the Prussian, Persian fleet. So the idea is well, when their backs to the wall, they'll, they'll fight, fight harder. Um, but Mac really kind of disregards his point of view, and he, his thinking is still, you know, cause, just cause violence for its own sake, and that's what will galvanize the people. Or he thinks this strategy of, of the funeral might, might help. 
But really, that's all they got because they don't have authoritarian hierarchical institutions that can actually enforce the, the strike. It's really the only weapon they have. Ch uh, chapter 11. Uh, here we see a, more evidence of the importance of community support for sustaining the strike. Um, and just that they're getting blankets and supplies and food from, from the nearby area. And the, the question is, how much do the local people support the growers associations? Um, as I said before, it was a little bit easier to sustain strikes in cities where the working class was integrated into the community, right? You, know, you want to get help from a local grocer. It's easier if they see the people who are striking as their customers and their neighbors and their friends um, rather than outsiders. These pickers, though, are migrant workers. Yet at the same time, do the people in the valley, maybe they don't think much of the growers. They might see them as, you know, robber barons. Um, and you have people like Al, who certainly are sympathetic to communism and others as well, will donate what they can. We get a bit more of Doc Burton's philosophy um, in this chapter as well. I mentioned it in the previous episode. Um, he basically, it's, it's a curiosity why Doc Burton spends so much time with the strikers and with these strikes and with the Reds. Because he doesn't seem to be really f um, supportive of their cause. And he tries to explain to Mac and Jim in the earlier chapter that it's because he really sees, he's interested in how human beings, when they form groups, become a kind of a new organism a group a group man is the term i think he uses rather than just like the unit man so it's like how a cell isn't the same as a full human being in the same way a group of people act don't act in the same way as individuals um whether that's carried out in this book i think can be de debated we do still see individual personalities affecting things like Mac's strategies as really comes out of how Mac sees things. Yet on the other hand, you see characters really change in a new environment. London definitely changes a lot. Jim Nolan changes, like he becomes less fearful of the bosses. Uh, so this is a good place to look for a bit more of Doc Burton's philosophy. Mac continues to worry about keeping the strike going. Um, but he despairs that he has no power to discipline the men. Now, Anderson is complaining. Now, in the previous chapter, or two chapters, or in chapter nine, I guess it was, Al, Anderson's son, had his lunch cart destroyed. And he was kind of a fixture of the working class community of the Torcas Valley because he made cheap lunches for people. Um, but his cart was destroyed by vigilantes. And because of that, Anderson is about ready to kick the men off the land. And that would be effectively ending the strike because the minute that happens, they'd be trespassers. So chapter 12. So this is a, like a, a kind of a valley chapter in which they're, it's a little bit more reflective. Jim spends most of this chapter talking to people in the camp, going around and talking to people. He talks to Lisa, the woman who had a baby earlier. Uh, he talks to Dan, the old man with the broken hip. And he's kind of comically annoyed that he's the one who instigated the strike because early on he was against the strike and he warned them. He's the old timer, too cynical. He didn't think much could get done. He kind of thought back, well, the Wobblies got a little bit done back in the day, but, you know, all that's left is really the rage against the machine, against the system. And he just thinks it's kind of humorous that it was his broken hip that galvanized the strikers and got them to act. 
Mac, meanwhile, is working on funeral preparations and wants London to, to make the speech. And at the end of the chapter, we do get London's speech. So, um, you know, London's point of view is like, I don't really know Joey. Right? So what can I say about him? And Mac realizes that this isn't a traditional funeral. This isn't the funeral where we memorialize the guy. The point of this funeral is to win the strike, is to try to get the people on board. So here's what this, here's what um, London says. I don't know no speeches. This little guy got killed yesterday. You all seen it. He was coming over to our side and someone plugged him. He was doing no harm to nobody. Well, what can a guy say? We're going to bury him. He's one of our own guys and he got shot. What can I say? We're going to march out and bury him, all of us. Because he was one of us. He was kind of like us. What happened to him is gonna, gonna, could happen to any one of any of the guys here. I, I don't know no speeches. There's a guy here who knows this, this little fellow, and I'm going to let him talk. So at this point, he hands over the microphone. Well, I, don't, I guess I don't have a microphone, but he hands over the, the platform to Mac, who comes at his memorialization in a slightly different way. He says, sure, I'll tell him. This guy's name was Joe. He was a radical. Get it? A radical. He wanted guys like you to have enough to eat and a place to sleep where he wouldn't get wet. He, he didn't want nothing for himself. He was a radical. Did, did you see what he was? A dirty bastard. A danger to the government. I don't know if you saw his face all beat to rags. The cops done that just because he was a radical. His hands were broken. His jaw was broke. One time he got that jaw broken a picket line and they put him in the can. Blah, blah, blah. On and on. So Lyndon's point of view is he's one of us. He's part of the group. He's part of the group man. He's part of the group unit. Mac sees him as just a, a symbol of the victimization of the working class. And these are very different approaches to uh, the memorialization of, of Joe. And I think they reflect a, a kind of two sides of the coin. Lyndon here is reflecting more the Steinbeckian um, opinion about how Joy uh, probably should have been remembered and how he could have been used. So that's that chapter. So chapter 13, after the funeral, they, they get some good news. And that is that a nearby farm is donating two cows and a calf and like a bunch of lima beans. And this gives them enough food to really sustain a strike. And I don't know how much meat you really get from a cow. I, I don't even eat meat. So, but I think two cows and a calf is quite a lot, right? It would feed a camp for a while. Now with the beans, you know, beans are such a common thing throughout Steinbeck's novels because they were cheap out in the West, I believe, and they were plentiful. In Tortilla Flat, there was a woman who basically raised her kids on beans. It's what they eat in Of Mice and Men. You know, beans is just a big um, part of life out in the West here in, the, in these days, especially for poor people. So they send some people to the farm. They slaughter the cows and they bring them back to the camp and prepare a meal for the strikers and you can there's a lot of detail here about the slaughtering of the cows and um, what was all involved in that so at this point bolster from the growers association meets with london this is the second negotiation in the novel the first negotiation happened earlier at the start of the strike and this is a very very interesting passage um, and i didn't notice it the first time i read it but when i went back and reviewed it for this podcast i was struck by how much the language of americanization americanism was used to woo london um, and of course he good cops them he good cops them and then at the end he kind of bad cops them so there's not two figures there's just him but he good cops bad cops them 
um, over the course of the conversation. But he talks so much about America. I'll just read a passage here and you can get a sense of what's going on here. Everyone in the association said you men wouldn't listen to reason. But I told them, I know American working men. Give American working men something reasonable to listen to and they'll listen. There, you see, that's what I told him. I said, let me lay my cards on my table and let them lay down their cards and see if we can't make a hand. American working men aren't animals. And he goes on like this, um, with this, this kind of uh, talk of the American worker. Now, of course, this is a big part of, I think, the welfare capitalist idea. Uh, if you don't remember your labor history, in the early 20th century, you had growing union militancy course you had the knights of labor in the late 19th century but they kind of died out but you had after especially after um the russian revolution the rise of the iww had growing conflict in the early 20th century uh, especially with the emergence of communism and Im immigrant um radicalism anarchism and one response to growing union activity was welfare capitalism and this was this effort by capitalists to kind of provide social welfare benefits, pension plans, health care, education for kids, Americanization programs, meaning essentially English language courses and things like that, you know, for workers. There was company housing and, you know, Hershey and Kodak and these com companies went farthest with uh, welfare capitalism. You can read Gerald Zahavi's book uh, on this, on Endicott Johnson. I forget the name of the book, but the author is Zahavi. So, that's kind of being reflected a little bit in in um, the speech here, Bolster, who thinks, really, can't we get along, right? We're all Americans. That's the that's it. London actually responds quite brilliantly, and it shows he really is uh, on top of his, his game. He understands the history of oppression in America, and he brings up the bonus army of all things. Now, as I said in the last episode, many of these people among these strikers are specifically identified by Steinbeck to be World War One veterans. It's the context of this tends to be, you know, can they be mobilized? Can they be organized? Will they listen to orders and things like that? And when the response is, well, they were soldiers. And But London here points out the Bonus Army. Now, the Bonus Army was an effort in the early part of the Great Depression when Hoover was still president to get kind of this bonus check a little bit early. Um, World War One veterans were getting like a pension. I, I forget how much it was, but it was, you know, a, a payment later in their life that they'd get. And that they, what the Bonus Army said, and it was a big protest movement in Washington. Um, it was called the Bonus Army because they were soldiers, they were veterans. And they, they just wanted the check earlier. That's all they wanted. Now, of course, this would have cost the government money because of the interest wouldn't have built up in the bank accounts of the, of the fund or whatever. Um, but that's what they, they wanted it now to spend now because they were unemployed and they needed the money. Um, and then eventually Hoover sent in the troops. And one of the first things that Roosevelt did when he became president was to sign the Bonus Act, which, which gave this direct payment to um, these veterans. But London mentions it and he says, quote, your health service burned the tents in Washington. That was one of the reasons that Hoover lost the labor vote. You call the guardsmen in Frisco and damn that near the whole city went to the strikers. So he understands labor history. He's not just a local popular guy. That's not why Mac picked him. He is, he is knowledgeable about these things. And he has this resentment built up. 
Burton, hearing all this, despairs that the strike is just meaningless and brutal. Um, and anyways, the negotiations break down. Um, after this the negotiation, London goes to Mac and approaches him and asks him, are you guys really communists? Of course, sort of everyone knew that they were or, you know, militants from outside coming in, but he asked them directly. And instead of this being a breakdown in the relationship, when Mac confesses that, yeah, basically we are communists, you know, London's okay with this. And he actually shakes his hand sort of and says, okay, I'll be, I'll be one of you too, maybe. It's at this time that they get news that Anderson's crop has been torched. Uh, so we know that Anderson's crop was picked and it was put in a warehouse and it was burned. And around the same time, they learn that Doc was snatched or, or run away, right? So this means that the health inspection will fail. So a couple of things all happen on this day. One is you have this good cop negotiation going on. But at the same time, you had these other actions taking place while they were distracted with this negotiation. One is the physician was taken, um, so he can't give his thumbs up on the conditions on the camp, which means the health inspectors could could close down the, the strikers camp and second and more importantly Anderson's crop was burned which means Anderson no longer has any reason to support the strikers his whole reason of doing this was to pay off his mortgage by getting his crop picked for free they capture a kid uh, and he has a 33 he has a gun and they question him and they find out that he was actually the one who burned down the burned the crop and it seems that the Growers Association recruited him with some other high school kids as tools. And in a really kind of brutal scene, they're forced to beat up this kid. Uh, and they beat him up pretty badly. I mean, it's like there's they're worried. Like, I think at one point, you know, Jim or Mac is worried, like, are we going to kill this kid? And it's, yeah, I think it must have been Jim was worried. And then Mac said, well, we just want a billboard. We don't want to actually have a, you know, kill the guy. But they must hurt him pretty bad because they want to make sure no other kids will will mess up but essentially this this does in the strike uh they had they don't have the the control or discipline that could have got them to over overcome this struggle mac realizes that the strike will fail and all he really has to hope for now is some kind of big fight that will maybe like win it in a big battle um he also has hope that maybe the long game might still work and that london will become a communist or i shouldn't you know it's not never identified as communist but Maybe he'll become a party member. So that's that. Um, that's chapter 13. This is a really big chapter, by the way. It's about 50 pages in, in a 250-page novel. Next, chapter 14. Um, so we start to get news reports blaming the fire that burned down Anderson's crop on the strikers. This is pretty run-of-the-mill stuff. We, you know, Of course, we expect the local press to support the Growers Association. They're the advertisers. They're the ones who are going to fund the newspaper. Mac is still despairing, but he thinks he can build up the party from this strike. Maybe get Lond and maybe get a few other people who will join the party. There's an interesting conversation, which I don't quite know what to make sense of, but where Jim talks to Mac about him seeing a woman um, and seeing her beauty. Maybe this is just like another way another path for Jim. I, I think this theme that established early on in the novel that Jim doesn't want anything to do with women because he's kind of a mobile guy. He's going to move around. He doesn't want to be settled. But here we, he sees a woman and he's entranced by her. So maybe this is just an alternative for him. 
Still, uh, Mac's big obsession at this point in the novel is the big explosion uh, that will take place before the strike was broken. That might give them hope. Or maybe just do it for the riot's sake, right? Propaganda of the deed, if you will. He thinks the mob can be rallied by blood and violence. And I, I think I have a quote here. Um, right, said Mac. People think the mob is wasteful, but I've seen plenty. And I tell you, the mob is something that with something it wants to do is just as effective as a trained soldier, but tricky. They'll knock the barricade, but what of it? They'll want to do something else before they cool off. That's right, what you said. It is a big animal. It's different from the men in it, and then stronger than the men put together. And it doesn't want the same things men want. It's like it's like Doc said, and I don't know what it will do. right? But it, there's hope in there for Mac. In fact, London does lead a brawl against the police and the vigilantes. Mac, of course, sees this violence as positive because he thinks it will awaken the men. Um, and that's chapter 14. The final chapter of the book, chapter 15, um, we, we see Mac meeting with Al to discuss the discussion of the crops. And there's not much Mac can do. There's not really money that the party has to pay him back. I mean, he's just going to have to eat the loss. I don't know if it's insured. But apparently, Anderson is done for. Anderson blames the... Mac and Jim and the strikers for what happened. And I don't know if it's here or somewhere else, but there's a there's a conversation. I think it's Jim who, who says this. And he's like, well, I'm willing to risk my life out there. The least Anderson could have done is risk his crops if he really believed in our cause. Right? And maybe there's a point to be made there. But certainly Anderson was being used by Mac. And in the end, he pays the price. And that's a theme here throughout is, is Mac doesn't pay any price. It's always these other people who pay the price. And if Mac was gaining from this, you'd say it'd be easier to be critical of him. But he doesn't he doesn't gain anything. He seems to be a real believer in the cause. And he really does think that if the apple pickers are organized, they'll have a better life. So I'm I'm kind of on that side of it. But perhaps his tactics, his strategies, the way he uses people is still open to um, critique. Uh, basically, they're setting up the context for for like one more brawl between the strikers and and the police. Mac tries to talk Jim out of it because he has that hurt arm, but Jim decides to stay in it. And around this time, they're ambushed. I think there's someone comes in and says, we found the doctor. He's tied up to a tree or something. So they go out in the dark to try to find him. And Jim is shot with um, a shotgun. And and. He, he, it's heavily implied he dies. I don't think he, he, like, there's no death scene here. It's just his body falls and they drag his body away. And the last thing that Max says in the novel, which is the last lines of the novel, is, quote, this guy didn't want nothing for himself. Comrades, he didn't want nothing for himself. And that's how the novel ends. Now, this is the same language that was used in Joy's funeral, right? So Jim just becomes another Joy, in a sense. So the, the novel kind of circles around that way well that that does it for the 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 main run through the main read through of indubious battle certainly one of steinbeck's greatest works um perhaps not read as much i i was looking at this on wikipedia and i i did read that apparently obama's favorite steinbeck book was indubious battle it's not really explained why he liked it uh, or how he interpreted mac and the other characters because as president, he certainly was far from 
a radical labor leader, right? Um, he ran much more kind of on the side of workers and even some basic legislation that would have helped unions. Something he ran on it was called the car check. You know, was something he turned his back on entirely when he became president. Um, but, you know, I'd like to know more about what Obama saw in this book. Um, now, this mo- this book has been adapted into a movie at least only one time, I guess, by director James Franco. He's the actor, but he was, you know, he's directed a handful of movies. And this is one of them. It's not well received. It's it's a solid adaptation. Uh, James Franco plays Mac. And, and the accusation of this is that it's a bit heavy handed in its themes. Um, it perhaps misses a little bit of the moral ambiguity of Mac, but I don't think that much. I mean, I did watch it uh, a few weeks ago. So I think it gets a bit of that. A lot of the major scenes are there. It's pretty well acted throughout, I thought. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's just not the kind of work that adapts very well to screen. Uh, some reviewers complain that basically James Franco was play acting as a radical. And and yeah, I could see where this criticism comes from. But uh, I'm not going to review movies. I thought early on in this podcast that I would review movies based on these works. But I don't know if we're going to do that. I'm not really that skilled in in re- I wouldn't know what to say about a lot of these films, but anyway, I think it's worth watching if you enjoy, if you like the novel. Um, it's about it's about two hours, and this it's well acted. It's got Brian Cranston in it, and Robert Duvall, and of course James Franco. So it's got a solid core of of actors. Selma Gomez is in it as Lisa. I think they tease a love interest there. That's not really in the in the book. Okay, uh, so themes. So if you're just joining this podcast, the point of this theme section is to kind of create a running index of themes that will connect this work to other works in, in American literature. So, um, you know, will certain themes come up again and again in American writing? And the idea is to, so, is to kind of at some point sit down and think, well, what are the major themes of American writers? I don't know if I actually do that, but... You know, the idea here is to kind of create an index that we can cross-reference works. Uh, so I just list what I think are the important themes. One, uh, World War One. This is the first... Not, well, that's not the first time. I, I didn't make this a theme in earlier books, but it was a big thing in the Harlem Renaissance novels. Uh, World War One. It was in Tortilla Flat, too. So I, I think we should mention World War One is a theme here. Many of the characters were World War One veterans and have that memory. Um, if we think of the song, Brother, Can You Spare a Dime?, its theme was, you know, I built this nation, I fought its wars, and that's you know, specifically World War One they're referring to, and now I'm being abandoned by my nation. So World War One, big theme. Agricultural labor. Uh, this is the first novel I've looked at that looks at agricultural labor in the sense, from the point of view of, of the workers. We've seen landowners before in book works like The Octopus and To a God Unknown and Pastures of Heaven. But this one really focuses on the the, the pickers, the work you know, the workers who really make the agricultural economy in the West work. So, um, of course, and we see people at work. It's not too much, but we do see a few chapters here where we see them actually at work. They spend most of their time on strike. Violence. This is a major theme of the novel. So Max sees violence as a historical act. We have. Old Dan talking about the resentment and anger building up, and he thinks it's only going to explode into violence. Doc Burton sees violence as more of an infection. 
he, he has a metaphor for it as an infection in, or a cut, right? And, and violence cuts in and, and, and spreads from there. So there's different metaphors for violence given throughout this book. So you could write, I think, a whole essay on just uh, the point, the, you know, how violence is interpreted and used in this book. Another theme, and I, this is really specifically to this, so I don't know if it cross-references really well, but maybe there's, I mean, solidarity, collectivity, the group man, the unit man. I mean, the, the whole idea of the group man, unit man is really strictly in this book and in Steinbeck in this period of his life. Uh, and now it might come up again in other works, but it's a real divergence from American traditions of individualism and, and you know, and the way of Americans see democracy as more of this, the, the individual rights. Steinbeck is, is proposing this group man idea, which might seem a bit old worldish from the perspective of a lot of American writers, especially being set in the West where you have the motifs of kind of the cowboy and the individual frontiersman. But more broadly from this, we can talk about solidarity and community and collectivity. In Tortilla Flat, we have, have this as well. Next, class conflict. This almost goes without saying. This is a, yet another novel about class conflict. Um, we've seen it before in The Octopus. We've seen it a lot in the Harlem Renaissance novels, and we have it here. Um, this is probably the first novel we've looked at that's strictly about class conflict, though. It's also the first novel where we can say communism is, is a theme here. Uh, there aren't that many points in American history where it seemed that communism was a real threat of taking hold but the 1930s were one of those periods you had it across American society whether it was sharecroppers in the black south or industrial workers or in the CIO you have many examples of workers becoming attracted to communism uh, I think you know thousands of people could be brought on the streets of New York City waving red flags and that's never happened again and, and probably never will again either who knows Another theme here is, is employer organization. Uh, it was hinted at in the octopus too, how the people in power could organize themselves to confront um, labor. Here we have a really good example of an employer's association organization in the growers association, which is basically the landowners. And they are very well organized. Mac is constantly worried about how well organized they are and how they're able to achieve uh, their victory. They control the vigilantes. They have people in the high schools that can recruit people. They know how to get scabs. They control the government and the police. And so they're very, very well organized. And that's what the strikers are up against. Now, of course, Steinbeck has to make them unstoppable because the whole theme of his novel is that this is a doomed strike. It's called In Dubious Battle. Right. Next theme, police and jails. Uh, of course, police are presence in regulating the strikers and, and trying to keep peace and eventually helping to suppress the strike. But jails have a bigger role here. I didn't mention it much with Tortilla Flat, but you know, a lot of the characters in Tortilla Flat spend time in jail. It's, it's, a, it's a big location in their life. And it is for Jim Norton, Nolan too, uh, for Joy. I, I assume Mac, Mac spent time in jail too. He talks about it. So jail is a place where people can become radicalized. It's a place where people can realize a broader identity with working people. For Jim, it was a place where he felt part of a community when he was losing it in his regular life. Tied to this, of course, is the theme of diversity. Um, 
and I think that's really where it's set. The we don't get the sense too much that the apple pickers are very diverse. They seem to be mostly white. There's not that many women, uh, although they're implied. At. And when you watch the movies, you see a lot more women in the movie. But there's not really many female characters. There's just Lisa. And again, we have characters. Women, women are talked about as prostitutes, you know, cat houses. Or Nolan has kind of this misogynistic fear of women. So there's some gender stuff here too and uh, you know let's keep it in mind i'm you know when we get to other books certainly grapes of wrath has stronger female characters as does east of eden so and i don't want to say this is something that steinbeck is is doomed to repeat but at least in this part of his career i still think he has this problem of seeing women in very just a handful of ways um family ties here um we have Various examples of this. We got the party itself as a family, organizing people who really have nowhere else to go. So the party becomes a new family. Uh, we have Nolan, who's resisting family, who lost his natural family and refuses to take on a new family. We also have London, who who has a family. He has, you know, his daughter-in-law as a kid. So that's the best example we have of a functioning family. I guess Dakin too has a family. We have Al and his father. So family ties are fairly important in this novel and are worthy of looking into a little bit deeper. Migration is another theme. We've seen it again and again in the Harlem Renaissance novels, in Steinbeck's other work, uh, in Norris's work, just moving around, people moving around and what that means for them. All the characters here are migrants, uh, except for, I guess, the Growers Association. Pretty much everyone else moves around and they're not here um it's really going to be richly what this means for the individual psychology is going to be the point of of mice and men uh, but for now just remembering that these people are very mobile it's something that can be studied a lot more and like in the same way that world war one is a theme of the novel so is the great depression it's it's not mentioned directly but we know from the reference to the bonus army and other strikes that this is set in the great depression it's set at the time that steinbeck was writing it and there it is. It's just this was the reality for a generation of Americans was, uh, you know, that, that the system had failed them and the resentment over a system failing people. And the final thing I want to say is, is mental disability. Uh, it's I struck rereading Steinbeck at this time, how strong the theme of mental disability is. We only have one mentally disabled character here and that's joy but joy and joy was brain damaged it seems it's it's not that he was um from birth with mental disabilities not like lenny i mean he was beaten up and he was never the same afterwards um so but that's there so we do have mental disability playing a role in this novel as well so that does it for in dubious battle a really great novel i really recommend reading it and i, I think you'll enjoy it so um, our next episode will be on Mice and Men, and then we'll set aside Steinbeck for a while, and we'll start Jack London. Uh, I've been really wanting to do Jack Bar John Barleycorn, so I decided to go ahead and look at London. But that'll be a couple episodes from now. We'll get into that. So thank you so much for listening. Please rate, subscribe, share, leave comments. If you have different opinions about this novel, if, if you have things I missed, 
things you want to share, please send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com or just leave a comment on iTunes. If you can rate or review it there, that'd be even better. So again, thank you so much for listening. I'll see you on 100 pages with and uh, of my singer. Yeah.